Guys, quick update and plug for our partners at MassBeth Squash, led by Rob. We're down to our final four in the MassBeth Outdoor Squash Tournament, and no better way to view it than coming down and watch the spectacle in person. And to follow along for results and free live matches, go follow at MassBeth.Squash. All right, welcome back to the Route Report podcast. Today's guest is having a resurgence of a season this year. Uh, already, even though we're only a couple events in, or one could say it's the year the Dark Knight Rises. Bit of a miss, too corny, Declan. But <laughs> but anyway, hard not to know him considering what he's accomplished already in his career. And this summer winning that Commonwealth Gold doubles alongside James Wolstrop. Well, welcome, Declan James. How are you? I'm great. Thanks a lot for having me. It's a privilege to be here and looking forward to having a, uh, a good conversation with you. So... First of all, I saw that your name wasn't in the U.S. Open. Did I get that right? That's right. Is there yeah, a particular so, reason why you decided not to play? Yeah, so just uh, well, a mixture of things, really. Obviously, we had um, a very long summer, not much of a, uh, a summer training, um, you know, with having the, the games there in, in July and August. And then in September last month, I played three tournaments back-to-back, Um so I kind of just felt that if I went, got, came back for a week and went straight on the road again, um, you know, I possibly wouldn't be at my best. So wanted to just take October off to do uh, a good training block and get myself in um, good shape, you know, also coming off the back of a pretty serious injury. Um, so, yeah, just decided to take that time this month to train and then I'll be back on tour uh, at the start of November. When you start the season, even like before the season, do you have everything mapped out for the year? Like, you know, what events you're going to be playing, what events you're not going to be playing, or is it kind of give or take by the month? In terms of events, yeah, you, you kind of take it month by month. Of course, things are laid out at least a few mm. months ahead in terms of the major tournaments and the ones that we go to every year. Um, but you, it, the situation is a little bit fluid as well. You have to take it as it comes and be prepared to, you know, go to an event next month that you'd not planned to or whatever else. So yeah, things do change. Um, and amongst that, you have those kind of few set dates every year, like whether it's, you know, Canary Wharf or TOC or British Open, whatever it is in and around that it's a little bit more flexible and changes. So you can plan, uh, for a few months ahead training wise, but that's, that's kind of about as far as it goes really. And quick, quick prediction here on this U S open tournament, um, who do you think is going to take it? Ooh. For me, uh, I would go with either Ali or Mohammed. Um, I think we're seeing mm. a resurgence from Mohammed at the uh, top of the game again. Obviously, he's just won in San Francisco a few days ago. And mm. um, Ali obviously won out in uh, the pyramids last week, again, showing that he's uh, you know back on top. So I think those two guys are probably the two uh, to beat in, in world squash at the moment. But I think that's changing uh, constantly, which is great for the sport now um, that it's not as, mm -hmm. that it's very open at the top of the game, isn't it? And do you usually watch along tournaments and like follow along when you're not playing them? Or do you just kind of just listen to the yeah, background noise? Of it? Yeah. Bits, bit, bits and bobs. I don't watch everything, um, but I'll, I'll keep mm. a sort of uh, a close-ish eye on what's going on. And if there's, you know, people that I particularly like watching or, you know, friends that I'm supporting, then, then of course I'll tune in for the matches. But yeah, I like to have a, a, a rough idea of what's going on. Yeah. And then 
to follow up on that, is there a which player do you really like watching play? I like watching Ali. I like watching Ali play. He's probably one of my favorite players to watch. Um, makes the game look a lot easier than it is. <laughs> um, so, but all of these top guys are great to watch because you can just learn. They're all very different, right? So there's a lot to pick out and a lot to learn from watching these guys. And, and I'm a squash fan as well. At the end of the day, it's been uh, a big part of my life. So, of course, uh, I, I'm a casual fan as well, just like everyone else. Yeah. So speaking of, I just wanted to get your take and how you feel about the current state of the men's tour. Because, I mean, it's pretty clear to me that you're an advocate of the clean squash brand, mm. but... You know, these past year or two has, you know, the lines have getting, gotten fishy and definitely the tour on both the men's and women's side have gotten a lot more feisty than back in the day. So I just wanted to hear what your thoughts were um, on it. Uh, I think it's not good. Uh, I don't think it's good at all. Um, I've been raised and brought up a certain way. Um, and, you know, uh, I tried to play the game with respect and respect for my opponents and the referee. It's hard at times in the heat of battle. We know how hard it is when the heart rate's at 190 and, uh, you know, maybe a decision doesn't go your way, but um, we have a responsibility um, to the sport, to the wider audience, audience in general um, as to how the game is portrayed and the behaviors uh, of certain players, not all players, um, for me is not acceptable. And I believe that those in charge um, need to crack down on that kind of thing. There was a few instances that I plugged in. in what, the, what, do you, um, what do you think? What do you think it is? Like the, a lack of um, consequence of like certain behaviors? Like what do you think is allowing this to grow these past couple of years? Well, I suppose there's a few reasons for that. I think squash, as far as I'm aware, is one of the only sports where dialogue between player and referee is so openly accepted. If you take sports um, like in the fight game, uh, in rugby, referees are addressed mm -hmm. with uh, a huge amount of respect. And if there's any back chat, it's pretty much you're out of there. Um, so I would like to see those in charge um, crack down on the amount of interactions between player and referee. I would like to see um, the move, some of the movements that we see, the blocking, the trailing legs. I would like to see a zero-tolerance policy on that as soon as it comes in. Um, squash is a very ambiguous sport, so it's hard to be right. black and white with refereeing. That's the bottom line. It's very hard. It's unlike a lot of other sports with the close contact, with the variables, with the movements. But I would like to see a bigger crackdown on, um, you know, on blocking and the sort because really the tour loses and the sport loses because as far as I can tell, the supporters and the fans and the people watching don't really want to see that and it's you know it doesn't make the sport look good i'm not really sure who benefits from that um, mm -hmm. but i'd like to see a stricter directive given to the referees to to clamp down on that kind of behavior as a player um we know those players that are that test the the boundaries a lot more than others and then they're not um fun to play against, you know, if you see yourself coming up against certain does, people. Does that draw. type of behavior get into your head? 
but yeah, not me personally, because I could mm-hmm. consider myself to be um, a level-headed individual, and um, I think I keep a cool mind on the court. I think it's one of my stronger suits. I've got weaknesses, of course, mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't affect me. But I do see that it affects other players, and um, <laughs> ultimately, it's just. I, mean, I think I'd get it affected. Yeah, yeah. I get affected. I start like stripping down to that level as well. If I hear someone start rambling on, so what's hard? Your, to, yeah, um, I don't know how you keep a level head. What What do you think about what you've just asked me, though, in terms of the the state of of the sport at the moment with 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 the refereeing, well, not the refereeing, but the behavior of the players? What What's your opinion on how things are? Well, I, I had an interesting conversation in a couple episodes back with Timmy Brownell, uh, the player from US, and he was just saying that it's it's hard to you know, play cleanly because once a player takes it to the the other side, it seems the pattern is they're able to win the match. So it's like you need to level the playing field by replicating that some sort of behavior like that. And it's hard to it's hard to win a match when you're at a similar level and one player has decided to, you know, start blocking, start, you know, getting to the mind games and head games. And he was saying it's very difficult as a player when you're trying to advocate for clean squash. But I do think the one part I do think it does is it sparks a lot of conversation, and I think any conversation, whether it's good or bad, does help the sport. Because um, I, I mean, even us talking about this, I think is helpful, and I don't yeah. think like maybe it is good for the sport, but I don't know. I, I have mixed bag feelings about it because I do think so much is allowed to happen, and as as not a professional player. I, I get confused now and I've never been confused watching squash back in the day of what is right or what is wrong. But nowadays I'm so confused because the lines get blurry. I, you can literally make up lets and strokes as we go along. Now mm. it seems like in the pro level and like the level you guys are playing at. And mm. that's really never been seen before in the past. For me, the thing is when you look at some of the guys at the top there, you're, you're Ali Farags and you Paul Coles, they play the game you know, as I try to play it in terms of with respect and they're hard fighters, very hard fighters, but they never cross the line as far as I can see in terms of the movement, in terms of trying to get away with the, with the doubles or whatever it is. Um, so if these guys can be at the world number one position playing in that fashion, that means that that there's no reason why everyone else can't. And Mm -hmm. when I see these guys, trying to use the the aggressive movements and, and, and getting the elbows out and whatever it is, I kind of just think, well, you can't be all that secure in your own game and your own mentality if you feel like you need to go to that side of things, it's you know? That's a good way to put it. So. It's tough. I, I feel like, I don't know if you, do you, I don't know if you follow another World Juniors, but I feel like every year it's, gets a bit dirtier and dirtier every year. I didn't, uh, I must admit, I didn't, plug, I didn't plug into that, so uh, I couldn't sort of pass comments mm-hmm. on that one. And so, yeah, that's that's what I got out of it. But I, I do want to go back to you on this. But um, so I, I know, Declan, these past couple of years have been a rough road for you physically, and it seems like you've been dealing with some injuries, even though you don't really go out of your way to let the public know what you've been going through. <laughs> and just, just wanted to hear... Just want to hear what how these past two years have been in general, and I know with the pressure, I'm sure with the squash community put on you when you were at the England number one spot. So if you could just tell us a bit about how these past couple of years have been. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a tough couple of years, but it's it's that's that's part of the journey. I mean, uh, 
things don't go, you know, life is not fair. Life's tough and um, it's not always going to go in a linear uh, curve. You know, things are going to flatten off at times. So um, during the COVID times, I, I struggled personally um, with the enjoyment of the sport because, you know, the restrictions were what they were. Um, especially having no crowds and going away and, and, you know, being in a very solitary environment. Um, the other players dealt with that a lot better than I did. You know, there's, there's, there's no doubt about it. I, I, mm. I struggled. And for me, um, if I'm not enjoying my squash, it's very hard to extract my best, um, my best level. So, you know, and, and the enjoyment is a conscious effort and I try to enjoy it as much as I possibly can, but it was, it was hard in that time. And, you know, the motivation to train is it never, never wanes. I'm, I'm in the gym, you know, six days a week, um, you know, like clockwork. I, I enjoy training. I always have, and I enjoy playing the sport. And for the most part, I enjoy traveling. And when that kind of enjoyment was taken away, that uh, that that made it tough and um you know um and then there's there's yeah obviously been a couple of of injury problems that i've had um so you know i was i was struggling a lot with my back towards the end of uh last year in um mm -hmm. in 2021 just towards the end there i was struggling with um a condition uh, a back condition that i that i've had for the majority of my life um it's not something i've ever really spoken about um yeah. In the wider public. The first time I'm hearing about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's not something that I, um, that I really talk about. Um, so I have a, uh, a condition called scoliosis, which is a, a curvature in the spine. Um, it's not mm -hmm. uncommon, um, amongst athletes. Um, you know, I think Usain Bolt actually had the same issue. Um, mm -hmm. so, but it is, it's, it's, it's quite a severe, um, curve that I have. Um, I was advised as a, um, as a sort of late teenager, 18, 19, I was advised, um, by several surgeons to, to have it operated on when I was younger, which would have almost certainly ended my career before it even really started. Um, so that's something that I live with, um, oh, wow. but it's obviously not serious enough that mm -hmm. it prevents me from being able to train and play, but it's, it does, um, create other issues uh, in my body where things have to compensate and play catch up. So that's just something that I deal with every day and very diligent with the physios and, and, and my strength trainer and the, the team around me. So um, the back's just something that I live with and, you know, uh, it's, it's great at the moment. Everything's honestly fantastic. So I couldn't be happier, but you know, there've obviously been times over the years where it's not been so good. Um, so I struggled with that a lot towards the end of the year, which really impacted my movement and my ability to, to get the most out of myself. And then, um, I kind of felt, um, sort of early on this year, I was really starting to find some form again and enjoy it. Um, going into the spring period, sort of February, March, April, I was starting to find a bit of a groove again. And uh, then unfortunately I tore my quad um, in, in, le in late April. Um, so I actually sustained a three inch tear to the, uh, the rectus femoris, which is the main, Jeez. Uh, the main quadricep muscle uh, that goes from the knee uh, up to the hip and it, and it flexes the hip. And I also caught some of the, the ligaments there in the hip. So, um, 
by all accounts from what my doctors uh, and my physios have told me is that I kind of actually got away with that in a big way. I was, uh, I was pretty much right on the cusp of being out of the game for nine months. So, um, you know, they were 50, 50 about whether or not I was going to be able to make uh, Birmingham this year in my head. Um, it was never a question. It was never a doubt. That's just the way that I am. But yeah, I've had some, mm-hmm. so, so I've had some, some, some pretty tough uh, setbacks in the last couple of years, but so has everyone else. Everyone's had their problems to deal with. There's, uh, as we know, um, you know, people like uh, Gawad, he's obviously struggling and, and Abuel Gar's been away for a long time. So everyone has to, mm-hmm. everyone has to struggle with their injuries. That That's not me uh, getting the violin out or anything. Everyone at some point mm-hmm. in their career has these things to overcome. So, mm-hmm. That's part and parcel of the life uh, that we've chosen. Squash is a, a brutal sport uh, on the body, as <laughs> you, you know as well as I do. It's such a tough, yeah. t- such a tough sport on the body, especially in the generation that we're living in now. Because I feel that the game is as physical as it's ever been, really, um, with the guys at the top there. Yeah, well, um, I kind of wanted to, to talk to you about that, about the changes in the game. I, I know we alluded to it earlier about just the different aspect of it, but like, I just wanted to hear about. When do you think this transition happened of like the game has gotten a lot more physical and who do you think? Yeah. What do you think happened from, do you think it's just an era of different players and their styles that they bring upon? Again, I think there's probably a couple of explanations. I mean, we, we've had the passing of a, a generation, or we've had a generational change, haven't we, in the last five years in terms of your Rammies mm-hmm. and your Greg, Gaultier, Nick Matthews, um, Shabs, all of these plays, there was a changing of the guard. They obviously played their certain way. They played an incredibly high level of squash, very clever, some of the best players in the history, right? So they had their way of playing. And so the game obviously then adapts around that when they were the kings up there for 10 years. And in the last five years, you've had the the rise of uh, your Paul Coles and your Joel Makins that have introduced a new level of physicality into the top of the game. So then you, you, your players like Ali and Mohammed um, and, and Tarek, from what I can see, have maybe had to adapt um, to the brand of physicality, really, that they've, they've brought this overt physicality into the game that everyone's had to respond to um, in their own way. So... Different generation of players, you know, a couple of the fittest guys that the game's ever seen are now in the top 10. Um, so all of these things have a bit of an impact into the, the type of squash that we see on the tour at the moment. And do you think your training also has changed the past couple of years just in terms of how much more physical preparation goes into it? My training has definitely changed um, in terms of what uh, what it's. I, I train in a, probably in a smarter way than I used to. Um, in the early part of my career, it was just volume, and we probably did too much at times. It was it was literally just ridiculous. Some of the some of the weeks that, that, that we were putting in, and, and not necessarily the healthiest at times, because you'd get to a Friday and you'd literally just be in a hole, and uh, you'd just be literally carrying yourself <laughs> through through the weekend. Um, I think one thing that I uh, that I pick up on is that people just don't realize how hard that the training is. Um, you know, at, at the top level, they just don't understand what what goes into to, to getting to, to any kind of level on on the world tour. So yeah, my my training has definitely mm-hmm. been adapted. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's definitely been adapted to what my body can and can't do, and uh, 
picking and choosing the moments to go to the well and to really to dig in and have those those um, those sessions where you go to the well as we would uh, describe it so but all for the all, all for the uh, to the positive side really i feel in the best shape that i've ever been in in my career and uh, feel very positive about uh, about what the future has to offer Oh, that's fucking exciting. Uh, yeah. I mean, you're already on a tear right now. Um, well, I kind of want to go back to the enjoyment aspect of it. I, I know you said during the COVID you weren't enjoying squash as much. Is that something you dealt with throughout your career up and down? Was that the first time you actually felt it? No, I've dealt with it uh, up and down um, throughout my career. I've, I've always had little um, patches every couple of years where I've kind of fallen out of love. Um, it's a rigorous... Mm. Um, uh, lifestyle it's an unbelievable lifestyle but it's tough because you mm. uh, again the sacrifice isn't quite understood maybe so much because people see that the good side of things when you're on the tv and, and playing at these iconic venues um traveling to all these countries but then what's maybe not seen is the time away from family and the hours of pain in the gym and the kind of mm-hmm. self doubt and the highs and the lows everything else that goes with it that people don't see it takes a toll on you and if you're so obsessed with one thing and you haven't got anything else going on that can sometimes you know if you if you feel like your happiness or contentment depends on the results or the performances that creates a very pressurized environment which can really lead to a lack of enjoyment. Uh, of course, everyone's different. Some people need that laser focus to be thinking about. Right. Else. I, I, I'm someone that's a more relaxed character and I need to have other interests in my life and other things to do away from the sport where I can just put the sport away for four days if, if needs be and go and see my friends and family go for that walk in the park, go for that coffee, whatever it is. Um, so it's just it's just a case of working out, learning about yourself, and working, uh, you know, as to what makes you tick as a person. Um, but it, you know, make no mistake, it's it, it it's tough um, to commit yourself to the training week in week out, and to do the travelling, and to handle the wins and the losses. It's uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's an amazing position we're in, but it's also it takes a lot out of you. Mm-hmm. Well, talking about pressure, I was going to ask you this about, do you think there's an unnecessary amount of pressure or someone could say a unique pressure that comes with England squash that puts on you guys considering the wealth of history behind the past successes? So I do think personally, I think there's a lot more than other countries. I've, I must have I've never felt that um, from England squash. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the pressures that I've struggled with in my career have been the ones that I've put on myself. You know, I've got a tremendous team around me and my experiences with England squash over the years have only ever been positive. You know, the coaching setup is second to none, the support second to none. I think maybe it's more the, the 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 wider audience in general that expect a lot. I think yeah. maybe the English people who are avid squash fans, very knowledgeable, and, and the, the 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 UK and the, the British squash fans, I should say, they're very knowledgeable and, and they love the game. And yeah, maybe they do put 
a lot of pressure on the players. But, you know, we, we must remember that we're coming off the back of one of the greatest generations of all time. And, you know, a, a Nick Matthew and a James Wallstrop and a, and a Pete Barker and a, and a Daryl Selby and Adrian Grant, you're talking five, six players that are in the top 10 in the world at one point, um, mm. one point all at the same time. It's, it's, it's kind of, I suppose, you know, the position that Egypt's in yeah. now. You know, but we've mm. seen this in the history of the game with the, with the Pakistani reign, with the Australian reign, you know, with the English reign, now with the Egyptian reign. It's, you know, it's nothing that we haven't seen um, in, in history already. There's been a pattern there. So England squash have been amazing with me. The times that I've been fortunate enough to represent England at the major championships have been you know, the best memories of my squash career. And they've been incredibly supportive of me, especially in the last couple of years when I've had that drop, when my level and my performances haven't been what they, um, what I expect of myself. They've been incredibly supportive. Um, so yeah, not, n never really felt any pressure from them, uh, in particular. So I've, I've noticed you give a lot of credit to Nick Matthew for believing and sticking with you these past couple of years. And, I'm confused. I've never heard the story behind how this partnership happened. It just, I feel like just sprung out of nowhere uh, for people that we, I didn't even really know you worked with Nick Matthew, I think told like a year. I just want to hear how did this partnership happen and you know, how, how it has changed your game and just to have him on your team. Yeah. So um, I worked with a coach called Phil Whitlock, uh, Emily Whitlock, mm -hmm. the uh, female player, her dad uh, mm -hmm. from the age of 18 to around about 26 or so. So he was wow. my first uh -huh. full-time coach and he was, you know, fantastic, a great influence on me and really helped me to mature my game and get me to the level that I got to. And uh, I think all good things come to an end and sometimes you need a little bit of change. Um, and I kind of felt that I just needed some extra things in my uh, game if I was to, you know, make another a jump. So, um, yeah, uh, that relationship came to, to an end and uh, Nick had recently retired about six months or a year previously. And, um, you know, I, I had been struggling with, 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 with enjoyment and with, with that kind of thing around that time. And I kind of just went over to Sheffield. I was fortunate enough to, to train with Nick from the age of 17 or 18. He would, um, he would uh, allow me to go into Hallamshire and, and train when he was, you know, at the very top of the game. So I was learning from him from a young age and on the England training squads and all the rest of it. And, uh, and I just, so you down. had a kind of a relationship. Yeah, before. we'd had a relate. Yeah, we'd had yeah, a relationship, yeah. but I sort of, you know, asked him to lunch one day and I just sort of said, you know, I'm kind of struggling, you know, would you be prepared to help mm. me? And, uh, he already had a million things going on as, as Nick always does. He's, he's a busy, he's a busy guy. Um, <laughs> but he came back to me a few days later and he said, let's do it. So he was, uh, so that was fantastic to have uh, the support of someone like him. Um, and it's been a, it's been a great relationship, you know, uh, even through those tough times that I had in the last couple of years, even though the results, um, and the performances weren't there, I actually felt like I was improving considerably as a player in terms mm -hmm. of the things that I can do on the court and the awareness of what's going on. I kind of felt like it was all going in the right direction. And a lot of that was down to Nick. So, um, I never lost faith in, in him or his, what he was telling me. And, and likewise, when I wasn't producing the results, he never once lost faith in me. He was probably uh, far more positive than, than even he 
should have been towards me uh, at times because, you know, there were times when it just wasn't good enough for performance. So um, there was never, never any sense of a negative comment that came from him. Um, I mean, you hear some, you know, not great things about, not great stories about words that coaches have had with their players, um, you know, in, in recent years. Yeah. And, and I, uh, you know, that's that, that kind of nonsense is, is, is not something that I would be involved with. So he, um, he's been, he's been fantastic. He's been a great influence and, um, you know, long may, uh, our relationship continues. So everything's going in the right direction. I mean, I'm enjoying it. I feel, feel in a good place as a player and, uh, and, and we'll see what the future brings. Yeah. I mean, speaking of that, I mean, I, I know it seems like a very positive start for you. What, what are, do you have like, do you have goals set for this season that you, you want to achieve? Like what, where's your headspace at right now? I mean, to, to be quite honest with you, Sean, the main goal has already been met. Um, I have to be, I have to be honest with you in terms of, um, in mm-hmm. terms of Birmingham, it was a life changing moment for me personally. Um, so whatever happens, for this season and indeed for the rest of my career, I consider to be a little bit of a bonus. Um, you know, I'm, I'm hungry to achieve more. Don't it's a good feeling. Wrong. Oh, yeah. it's the best feeling in the world. I can't describe it. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, so yeah, whatever happens going forwards, you know, I'm hungrier than I've ever been to train hard and to, to achieve and mm-hmm. to, to get results and, and, and to be back towards the top of the game. But I can do it now in more of a pressure-free environment because I did put a lot of pressure on myself my whole career to reach the top. And, you know, that can, you know, that has its consequences from time to time. So uh, I'm just enjoying being back out there. That first month on tour last month was the first season for a few years where I've just been excited to get on the plane and go to this, these countries and come back and at home for a day and going again, but just loving it, just enjoying being on court, enjoying being in these places. And, you know, it's just, uh, I'm just grateful that I have that kind of attitude back in terms of really considering myself so fortunate to be playing sport for a living. And it helps when, you know, the crowd is full, like the nice one. That was oh, I mean, insane. I mean, those guys are kind of just, uh, they're just showing us what the sport can be. You know, it's, right. it's, it's the, the, the rest of the tour and the people in charge, you know, of the sport, they really need to be paying a close eye to what non to doing, you know, they need to be mm-hmm. there with the pen and paper and then going to the other organizers and promoters of tournaments and saying, you better have a look at what non to doing because, you know, if I was a tournament organizer right now, I would be ringing the guys in Nantes and saying, please tell me how you're doing it. You know, can I come and have a meeting with you? Because mm-hmm. from the marketing to the organization of, uh, of the event and the, uh, the, the way they're getting the crowds in from round one to the venues that they're using, the production of everything with the entertainment, it's unlike anything aside from, the Commonwealth Games. It's unlike anything that I've experienced squash-wise in right. terms of an atmosphere. You've got the, the first round, a thousand people there. It's unbelievable what they're doing and have been doing now mm. for a number of years. So it's not like they've come from right. nowhere. They've been doing this, Sean, for a number of years. Yeah. And and it's um, 
it's a bittersweet thing because it's unbelievable when you experience that, but it's very much a one-off experience on the world tour to experience something like you do when you go to Nantes. And it just frustrates you in a way because it's like, why can't a number of the other yeah. events be like this? Because if, if they were, the appeal of squash would go through the roof because at, at the moment it's not good enough. The sport is not in a good enough mm-hmm. position. You know, the, the numbers, um, the prize money, the people watching, it's not going in the right direction. In my humble opinion, you know, some people might disagree with that, but as far as I can see, the sport isn't in, a, in an amazing shape overall. And I don't think it has been for a number of years. And we need people to come in and shake it up mm-hmm. and see how good it can be because it can really be something yep. special. I mean, just to see even the that event and then right after was the Egyptian Open, the crowd difference. I mean, it's a platinum tournament. It's a shocker to see. It's like one tournament's supposed to be as equivalent of a Grand Slam and the other one's just a... It's well, not you as, go I mean, from, I mean, you're going from a thousand people screaming, you know, banging their feet on the on the stands, high level of squash being played, the guys killing each other, to a week later seeing a floor where the lines don't work, where the sand on the court, where it's unplayable because the floor's too slippy, and then you've just got people elbowing each other and blocking, and I'm just thinking what are we doing here, guys? What? The sport, what are we doing? It just looks terrible at times. And the week before, mm. you'd be shouting from the rooftop saying, look how amazing this product that we've got is. So it's like two ends of the spectrum. And to me, that's not good enough. The level, the standard of the events, it has to be higher. Completely, completely agree with that. And it's tough. It's tough to say. And hopefully, as you say, other tournament organizations are taking notes. What do you think the sport can do to, to you know, increase that that participation to make it more interesting to watch to get the the, the, the crowds in in bigger numbers? I think I think the big lack of I mean I, I don't want to blame it too much because we're still reco- I, I think we're still recovering from the COVID period and organizations are getting back on the feet and I, I do want to give credit to Egypt for. You know, putting up these events for you guys to have that prize money, but that was fantastic. It's just like yeah, diversity did, of different yeah. countries, to, yeah. Diversity of different countries to host events. Like I, I know New Zealand's going to be hosting an event, but like I know back in the day we had the Australian Open. Um, we also had the Hong Kong Open. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's back in the calendar, but having you know, you never know which which country is going to have those those crowd. And then once you have once you have that data point of okay, we know that you know, location A has a good crowd. Yeah. successful tournament and we just replicate that on and on instead of it's tough because right now I, th- I still feel like we're gearing towards who does have the financials to to give you guys the money mm. you know give you guys the right payout and it doesn't matter if there's you know one person showing up in the crowd as long as the payout is up to standard with a platinum event they have to continue that and it, it's tough to see because on the fan perspective as much as we care about you guys getting paid as as a professional athlete, like all we're seeing is the visuals of it of and the visuals, especially for the Egyptian open was atrocious as you were mentioning the lines. And I, even the whole like idea of a glass floor, I, it does not look good to me. I think the wood has a beautiful aesthetic to it. I don't know why they're not um, investing in other technologies such as, you know, why don't we invest more in the outlines? You know, why don't they beep on the outline? If the ball hits the out, I, like that blows my mind that we still don't have the technology to, determine exactly if the ball is out or not um, or like double bounces 
So stuff well, like that, I feel like, like we're um, not investing in the... Yeah. yeah, it's things like production as well, right? So you go to Nantes and you'll see the entertainment, the the music and the dance show in between, and, you know, there's a whole host mm-hmm. of other stuff going off on court. And then you go to an iconic venue like the pyramids one of the most iconic locations in the world why is there not a drone flying around taking aerial shots and getting aerial Mm. footage of the court with the pyramid in the backdrop so that we can create more interesting content why you know are we not doing so many more things for the production like the use of music when the players come onto court the way that the lights are used you know we need to be looking at sports like boxing and um things like that that look amazing on television whereby there are so, so much is put into white in towards the, the entrance of the players, for example, with the music, with the lighting, everything's built up to a bit of a crescendo. Why are we not, you know, looking at it from a production point of view to make that product even more appealing than it already is? A lot of the feedback that I get from people who aren't as familiar with the sport is that it's too hard to follow on, follow along what's going on because it's very subtle. The game's full of subtleties and it's very clever and to the trained eye, to the um, uh, the, the, the squash uh, fan, they obviously know what's going on and they can appreciate it, but it's a little bit harder for mm. the person who hasn't seen squash before to understand exactly what's going on. So what compensates for that in Nantes is the theatricality and the drama of everything, the lighting, the shows in between, the, the emceeing work from uh, Remain. All of that helps to create a bit of a picture of what's going on. And unfortunately, with the other events, we don't quite see that. So sometimes it's literally just straight into the game, and that's all we see. And the problem is, if that product on that particular night isn't up to scratch because the players aren't having their best night or someone is throwing the back leg out left, right, and center, then the audience is going to come away from that feeling like they've not got value for money. And at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. yes, we're a sport, but we're also a business and we need commercial minds to look at it in kind. Oh, that's a great point. You just got me thinking the, I don't know if you saw it, but the MC for the Egyptian open was so, so bad. I didn't say the questions he was asked. I mean, yeah, it was compared to the one in nuts. It was, it was atrocious, but it's it's obvious that you've given this a lot of thought. Do, do the PSA as an organization ask you guys a lot for your input or not really? I've been asked for my, for my input on multiple occasions because of comments that I've made in uh, articles and um, podcasts, whatever it is, interviews. Um, you mm-hmm. know, I'm always happy to sit down and discuss the ways in which we can improve because I think there are many. Um, so I have, I've voiced these opinions. Um, I can't really speak as to whether or not they've been taken on board and, 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 and yeah, reacted to, I can't speak to that. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm just speaking from what I see and, and hopefully from a point of common mm-hmm. sense, I'm someone that loves sport. I watch a lot of sport, and I see how these other sports that are on the TV in the mainstream are doing it. And I kind of feel like we've got lessons to learn. Um, from the way that other sports are going about their business. But the problem is there's no reason why I can't be doing that. That's what I find frustrating. I know money is probably the bottom line with a lot of these issues that we're talking about, Sean. But if the sport's going to survive and grow and become what it can be, we're going to have to invest uh, into the the production and and the running of events. (sighs) Yeah, hopefully. Now this sparks some fire. That's the goal, but um, I'm going to, 
transition into the quick fire segment now. And to start this off, we're going to do this thing where we built the perfect player and you can only use active players. And I say this to everyone, there's absolutely no shame in choosing yourself for any of these questions. (laughs) I'll start this off. Has anyone done that? I don't think anyone has. (laughs) This is a pretty recent one. And I think a lot of the players I've had are a little too humble so far. Hopefully we get, hopefully that might change today, but um, we'll start this off with the best forehand in the game right now. You think? I'd probably have to say a Sal. Just the pat. You think it's the sheer power you can generate yeah. off that side? Yeah. How about best backhand? I am going to say Diego. Really? Could you could you say explain why? Is it the subtleties? The subtleties, yeah, and the wrist the wrist power obviously takes the ball into the front left a lot, but then from the front left, he's obviously got that straight drop or the cross court uh, flick. Um, he's got it can generate a lot mm-hmm. of power on that side, uh, a lot of deception as well. Yeah, you've had some brutal battles with him. I'm, yeah, I'm we've had some TOC ones. He gave me he gave me a bit of a lesson <laughs> in Egypt a couple of weeks ago, but we have had some uh, some good ones over the years. Uh, <laughs> um, how about best movement? Uh, Paul Cole. See, I think this is the one that's a split with a lot of people. Either they choose Farag or. You know, the likes of Megan or Cole. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I would be between Paul and, and Ali as well. Um, so I'd different, between, but yeah, both. they are completely different. Yeah. Ali's Ali's movement is beautiful. It, it is beautiful. Um, you know, mm-hmm. he's probably if if you were, you know, designing a perfect squash player that you wanted someone to to, to play like or and move like, you'd probably describe Ali Farag. But I think Paul. Um, he has that obviously that massively explosive side as well. And how about lastly, best uh, mental game? Best mental game, Mohamed Al Shibagi. Can you expand a little bit why you you chose him? What he's achieved um, already, and uh, and he's obviously had that lapse in the last couple of years, um, similar to the way that I have, but on a much higher level. Um, and I think his ability to have got himself, it looked like he was kind of on the precipice there of, of really, um, can he come back to a good level? And he's, it seems, transformed himself uh, back into a, a top uh, a top two and, and three player in the world. So, um, you know, the, the, the mental um, prowess required to, to, to achieve that is, is admirable. And um, he's obviously at 45, 46 yeah. titles now. And, and, and that's that duration of time at number one is, you know, the mental fortitude required to achieve these things is, is um, not to be underestimated. Yeah. I'm definitely one of those guys who wrote him off publicly and is looking like a fool right now <laughs> with his performance. Yeah. So, not the greatest look on my end, but I mean, I guess there you have it. You got the Declan's perfect player. And just now moving on to the classic segment, this is just going to be a bunch of questions for you that are squash related to start it off. Um, first one is who do you think is the best ref on tour? John Massarella. Do you think it's just his experience? Experience. And he, uh, he's got a very good ability to read the ball and uh, to, to read the play and read the situation uh, as well. Mm. Um, we, we see, you know, I don't want to get in trouble, but we see a bit of a lack of common sense at times. Um, 
Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of a lack of common sense from the players, and, and there's a lot of stuff that the players do wrong. Don't get don't get me wrong, but uh, from the refereeing side, sometimes you know the common sense uh, outcome isn't always reached. You know, uh, the, the game is ambiguous, as we've said, and sometimes it's just a let. You know, uh, we don't need to overcomplicate things and uh, try and leave uh, a mark on the match. Uh, sometimes a let's just a let. And best dressed player on tour. Oh, close to saying myself for that one, you know. <laughs> some que- I had a some, feeling you might pick yourself up. There's some questionable dress senses on tour, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> All right, you're, you're going to love the next question, then, because I am going to follow up something. <laughs> um, but I suppose... Who do you think is little, the worst dressed? The worst dressed? Oh, Miguel's not, you, not a great feel dresser, free. is he? I don't think Miguel's a great you dresser. Say? Miguel's oh, not Miguel? a great dresser, okay. is he? <laughs> you don't like the color combos. Sorry, so, sorry mate. I'm a, I think he's a great guy. But <laughs> Do you have any others in mind? It seems like you had a bunch of names in mind for the worst dress. Oh, not too many. Not too many. It's just a general a general theme. I'd like to see a little bit more aesthetic and uh, a little bit more thought into uh, into playing kits and all, all this kind of stuff. Because, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a bit mad. <laughs> Anyway, sorry. I know you skipped out. Who do you, so who do you think is the best dressed other than you? Because we already know that you're definitely up there on the best dressed scale. Uh, who's up there? Who is up there? I think Ali. Uh, Ali's up there. I think he's uh, he, he's a smart smart guy. Um, Paul and Joel. That's uh, their, their kits are always very good. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Their kits are. Always, That's funny. Uh, you said Ali because. Um, Ollie's been mentioned a couple times as worst dressed. Worst dressed. Yeah. Are we going? Uh, are we going on court or off court clothing here for this dress sense? I think on court. Right. I think the okay. whole like polo locked up to the front has yeah, been that's mentioned. Maybe not about. the best. Eka's Eka's a good uh, Eka's a good dresser off court from what I've seen. I think he's got a good dress sense mm-hmm. as well. Uh, okay. Yeah. All right. And who would you like to see in the commentators booth in the squash community? George Parker. <laughs> I think he would be that w- I would, if he was, Yeah. If he was himself, he'll be incredibly entertaining. <laughs> oh, I really him, hope. We need to get we need to get George and Pat Rooney. We need to uh Pat, Pat Rooney's need, name has been mentioned multiple times on this. We booth need to collection. get George with those two together. Are an absolute comedy double act. Honestly, they're two of my closest mates on the tour, and they are hilarious. And for whatever reason, when they get together, they're just they're just carnage. So yeah, they they would be like the new Joey and PJ. <laughs> that would be that would be lovely. Um, I, I know you're not you're not unfamiliar with the doubles, considering you just won the gold. But other than Wellstrap, who would you want to, to play with as your partner? Whether it be on the mixed side or on the men's side, what's yeah, one tough. player that it, you'd like it's to play tough, with? isn't it? Because with the doubles, you know, mm-hmm. you can get the best two players on paper, put them together, and they, and they could be useless. The doubles is it's about so much more than how good an individual player is. I mean, you know, Daryl has come out of retirement for the last year, and uh, he, he's come into the doubles and, and picked up. Uh, and got to the final. Um, so it just shows, um, I think looking into the, the setup now, um, if, if James 
um, has called it, and uh, I can't manage to drag him out for the next Commonwealth in four years, then um, you know I'd probably look at uh, practicing with, with Adrian Waller again. He's obviously got that massive forehand, and his pedigree at doubles is second to none. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if Mo's got um, an, an appetite for the doubles as well, because although he's never played, if he puts a couple of years in of, of practice, then his forehand could be formidable. Yeah. So as someone who's not familiar with the doubles game, and not, what makes how do you become a good doubles player? Like, what are, what is the biggest difference you think in the singles game and the doubles game? Because you do see a lot of active players who do back and forth. There's a massive aspect of uh, ability to play in a team. So all the things that that requires, i.e. communication mm -hmm. and reading what your your teammate is going to do or not do. Um, so you have to have a good relationship with your teammate. You have to get on very well with them, um, be able to communicate and be honest and open with them. And you have to have game styles that complement each other. So if you've got two players that are both very attacking, that's not necessarily the blend that you need for doubles. With the successful partnerships, in doubles, historically, you've seen one um, maybe more attacking player and one more of a containing player. So, you know, Jimbo is more mm -hmm. of an attacking player. He has more attacking options on his uh, forehand there, uh, typically, than I do on my backhand. So throughout our uh, partnership over the last five, six years, I've played a containing role um, uh, down the backhand side, and he's been uh, a little bit more open and, and creative. And um, Adrian, That's interesting, yeah. Adrian has, has, has very much taken on that attacking role, and, and Daryl's played the containing role on the right side. So, um, yeah, with the partnerships, you see um, they, they, balance, they balance each other out. So often if you have someone that is uh, can absorb and contain and create opportunities and another person that's very good at attacking and taking the ball in, um, that often leads to a, a good partnership. Oh, that's a, always learn something new about the doubles. <laughs> I don't know too much about it. Um, Declan, would you consider a coaching post-career or is that not a thing for you? Not personally. Um, never say never, of course. Um, mm -hmm. I've done little bits in the past, uh, in the off season with the, the camps and, and whatever else. But, um, I, I'm a big believer in experiencing other things in life. Um, squash has been the main driving force in my life for, you know, 20, well over 20 years at this point. And uh, I'd love to experience different things in life. I'd love to go down different avenues, uh, different industries. Uh, so I'm hoping that after my squash career is finished, uh, I'll go uh, into another career path. I'm sure I'll keep my... Uh, my uh, ear to the ground with what's going on and uh, I'd, I'd be open to mentoring and maybe if someone wanted a little bit of help with something, maybe I could pass down a bit of mm. experience if, if that's worthwhile to, to someone. Um, but I would like to yeah. experience different paths in my life after squash. And some, some feisty ones. Uh, most underrated player on tour, you think? Most underrated player on tour. Um, a couple of the English guys, George, I think is still yet. I think mm. we're still yet to see George's potential with his physicality and his movement. I think we're still yet to see him. There's a player a little bit lower down, Curtis Malik, who I've played a few times now. 
Mm-hmm. I think he's got a lot of potential. Um, I mean, I maybe would have said uh, someone like a Victor Crown a couple of months ago, but he's obviously <laughs> now uh, fulfilling that potential, as we can see. Uh, unbelievable. Yeah. Um, I think a couple of the, the other French boys will, will, will come through and follow suit there as well. I think the majority of the Egyptian guys that we see at the top of the game are, are fulfilling their potential. Um, so there aren't too many that, that, that stick out mm-hmm. as, uh, as underrated at the moment. Okay. And then how about who do you think is the most overrated player on tour? Oh, going to get in trouble for a, a few of these, aren't I? Um, I mean, That's if, I have, the aim. if I have to pick a name out of the top 10 or 12, um, I don't see Mazen Hesham as a, a seven or eight in the world player. Um, if I'm being honest. Um, Declan, just th- a huge, huge thank you for answering that question. We've had a huge streak right now where uh, I guess have refused to answer that question. Oh, so you I, definitely I'm just not, broke that uh, streak. I'm not bothered about rustling feathers. Um, nothing personal against any of these people that we're speaking about. I don't know them mm-hmm. and have personal relationships with them. Um, but I'm I'm an honest guy. I speak I speak my truth. So uh, yeah. Oh, it's incredible. Um, and I, I always ask this if they don't answer it. But who's one player that you dislike playing? Just like clashing on your with your playing style. Asal, obviously, Asal. I mean, it's just uh, it's you, you just know that you're going in to not play a game of squash, so it's it becomes a little bit like how much do you fancy a street fight on that particular day? Um, mm. You know, I can sort of contrast that, for example, with playing a, a Gawad or a, an Ali Farag or a James Rolstrop, where you know it's going to be pure purely squash, squash. yeah, nothing else, just artistry and. You know, I'm playing these guys that I'm almost kind of just in awe and waiting to see what they're going to do and just trying to make it competitive myself and trying to win, but just enjoying what they're doing as well. And really those occasions are just like, oh, this is fantastic. And then you'll play some of these other jokers that just want to block you out or whatever else. And it's like, why am I doing this? Do you know what I mean? So (laughs) it is what it is, but that's part and parcel of sport. That's uh, that's life Mm -hmm. and we, we have to get on with it. Fair enough. Um, and now, no longer some squash ones, but just to get you to know you better, some life questions. Declan, if you're shipwrecked on an island, all your basics are covered. What are the two things you bring with you? Two things: uh, a book, and oh, basics are covered. So, like a knife, would a mm-hmm. knife be? That would be my basics. Are we talking? So we're talking like oh, luxuries. Yeah. Those those things, luxuries here. <laughs> um. Probably a book and then something to listen to music with. Yeah, so like a... Okay. Yeah, not, not a complicated person, just the bait, yeah. And best and worst purchase you've ever made. Best and worst. Um, best purchase, probably the watch that I'm wearing at the moment. And worst purchase mm-hmm. would be any kind of like designer shoes or clothes that I bought when I was like 17, 18, 19 years old, spending like 600 pounds on a pair of trainers to try and look good when really I should have just been investing that money and being clever, but I just want it to be cool. So that's not really got me that far, has it? <laughs> I guess that's investment to yourself and your and your luck. No, nothing wrong with that. And on, on a night out, what's your drink of choice? Ooh, I do like a Negroni. Um, mm-hmm. 
I do like a margarita um, or just yeah. a simple rum and coke. Got it. And lastly, biggest pet peeves for Declan. Oh, how long have we got, Sean? <laughs> <laughs> um, I dislike people that go back on plans they've made. So if you've made plans for oh. something and then people pull out, I dislike yeah. that because I think it's a showing disrespect to the other person's time and they've blocked that off in their diary. Um, so anything to do with sort of respecting other people's time um, is, is, is a big, a big no, no for me. Got it. Um, well there, I'm going to wrap it up there, folks. Uh, just a huge shout out to Declan for, joining in and excited to see what this season has in store for him. But yeah, thank you, Declan. Thanks for having me, mate.